everybody, welcome back to the One's Ready podcast. We appreciate you joining us. We have two very special guests today. We have the command team for the Special Warfare Training Wing, Colonel Mason Dula and Command Chief Todd Popovic. Colonel Dula is a special tactics officer and the commander of the wing, which, as you know, is in charge of 16 Air Force schools that are, are rooted in our pipeline. And then they also manage... Uh, the Air Force participation for seven other joint schools. So think of your, you know, your military free fall, your airborne, that kind of stuff. Um, Colonel Dula has been around for quite a long time. We go way back, um, almost to when I first came into the Air Force. Um, great guy, been involved at, at every single level that you can think of in terms of the team, the flight, um, DO, squadron commander, group commander, and now wing commander. And uh, an all-around great guy. And then we have Command Chief Todd Popovic, who is a pararescueman by trade and is also the senior enlisted leader for the Special Warfare Training Wing, which, as you know, assesses, selects, trains Special Warfare candidates through the pipeline. Um, and they have a, an entire team of human performance specialists and combat mission support or Special Warfare mission support airmen. And we want to thank the command team of the Special Warfare Training Wing because we know that they're extremely busy, uh, which is why we've kind of broken up the intro to the actual discussion because we wanted to maximize our time with them and get through as many questions and discussion points as we possibly could. So now Thanks for tuning in and on to the rest of the stuff instead of me talking. Colonel Dula, Chief Pop, we really appreciate you joining us today. And uh, I obviously gave you a very glowing uh, introduction, but uh, we wanted to jump right into these. So one of the questions that we get a lot is, and I mean, we can answer it, but hearing it from you guys is all that much better. But why is the pipeline so long? <laughs> That's one of our favorite questions, Chief. Uh, I'm sure it is. So you got to get specific quick when you ask that uh, particular question, which pipeline are you referring to? But in general, some of the uh, issues that plague all the pipelines are the employment courses. And anytime we have to reach outside of uh, Air Force controlled schools with Air Force controlled seat allocations, things get a little bit dicey for us. So the, right now, the primary lymphac uh, is military freefall. And some of the work we're doing with USASOC uh, to increase some of those course seats, but it is it is pretty bad, and it is creating significant backlogs that creates significant amount of frustration for the candidates that are going through the pipeline, and pushes uh, pipelines that are pretty long already to uh, not front stages. So, right, so much of this is out of our control, then, or out of your control. Well, I think it's our job to fix it, uh, Chief. I think that's one of the reasons why they stood up a training wing. So I wouldn't let us off the hook quite that easy. It's just taking <laughs> it out. Um, but we we certainly acknowledge that it's really frustrating. I think it's compounded by uh, kind of universal uh, training experience, uh, right? So when you're when you're here around the flagpole, when you're here at JBSA, when you're here on Chapman Training Annex, uh, that becomes associated with early phases of the pipeline. Uh, pretty pretty difficult, arduous courses, and people are generally happy to get the heck out of here uh, and move on to other tr training venues. When we do things like shift the paramedic course out of Kirtland and bring it here to Chapman, um, one, the course is better, flat out better in every aspect, and, and very soon we'll be roped into SOCOM accreditation for electrical practitioner, uh, the same way that pararescuemen were always accredited through SOCOM standards when they went through uh, the 18 Delta course there at Bragg. So 
So as we make the course better, we inadvertently have made people less happy because they're spending an additional eight to nine months here on Chapman Training Ethics. And that comes with a cost and it comes with the dorms that are here and uh, and some of the cultural loss, I think, about being co-located with your particular tribe, whether it be out at Pope or Kirkland. So, so to some extent, I think the pipeline may feel longer than it actually is, even when folks are gainfully employed in training courses. But uh, the employment courses are the, the toughest nuts for us to crack right now. Oh, and I, I've, I've got to commend uh, both of you and, and obviously the staff that, that you and the rest of the instructors have, because um, I mean, you, you really have gone from what was a, a relatively small facility um, out on what used to be Medina, now, now Chapman, um, to you really have kind of an empire. Like it's, it's impressive to see. So that's, that's amazing. All the work that you and, and all the folks out there at JBSA have done. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, you ain't see nothing. It would be the answer. <laughs> nice. And all your shots right there. I love it. A $70 million uh, aquatic center. So uh, in about 18 months, you're going to see uh, some crown jewel best in DOD kind of facilities start springing up here at Chapman. Military construction is a long game, uh, and it's going to take a second to make everything right. But again, what, you know, why do you stand up a training wing to fix some of these long-term problems? You're, we're going to start seeing visible impacts of that that are going to make a, a real and meaningful immediate impact to the way the training pipeline is run pretty soon. I think December 23 is when the pool is going to be done. Wow. That's pretty quick. Rel I mean, if you think about it, that's to, to build a pool and a whole aquatic center like that. That's impressive. We could do the big reveal um, for what the aquatic center is going to be named after, but I think we're probably going to have to keep our powder dry because the chief is still working that. Staff. Oh, Colonel, come on. This is the time you do it. This is the, this is the platform. I defer to the chief. Uh, since I think General Webb's always already privy to it, we could probably uh, go ahead and put it out. No, guys, so we're, we're pursuing uh, the naming package as we speak right now, but uh, name uh, the facility after Mass Sergeant uh, Mike Moulds. Uh, oh, no way. Uh, who uh, awesome. in uh, March three. So uh, it, it, there's uh, some administrative hurdles we got to get through just to, to have it done prior to the uh, completion of the facility. But uh, we're on glad still to make that happen. Yes, Chief. And for those that aren't tracking out there, naming a building, naming a complex, it's actually it's it's nested in heraldry. It's nested in a, a long process that has to be complete in order to do it right. Mike Maltz, for everybody that's not tracking, he was renowned for one thing and, and one thing only. You know, it was his, his glowing attitude. Um, you know, that that's a joke to the men that knew him. You know, he's pretty matter of fact. But he was a physical specimen all the way up until the you know the deployment and, and unfortunately him losing his life for the country. He was one of those guys that even as a master sergeant, you look at you be like, I cannot keep up with this guy. He is an insane monster of a man, and he always has been. Which it, it actually feeds this next question perfectly, Chief. And how has the special warfare training wing integrated human performance into the aspect war pipeline to produce some more of those those monsters that we that we all have, you know? I, Chief, you were a, an instructor of mine at, in the in the schoolhouse, and you always looked up to the instructors. You're like, man, these guys are 10, 15 years older than me. These guys are absolutely crushing me. So how have we integrated human performance into the aspect war training pipeline to, to continue that legacy and to continue the output that we need? Yeah, thanks, Alex. That's a great question. And you know, so when I first onboarded uh, at the time, the group, Battlefield Armament Training Group in February 17, you know, the, the human performance was kind of a new uh, nomenclature for, for me anyway. Uh, and so coming into that, looking at the, at the time, the group's uh, mission and the vision and the vision being, 
being uh, the recognized uh, leader in the SOC community as it relates to human performance and just having that vision so that aspirationally we're moving in that direction and trying to harness uh, industry, academia, and exploit some of that technology that's that's been out there. And if you look at uh, D1 uh, schools, professional sports, uh, and, and then venture say in our, in our with our joint partners as well. So with that, as I started to understand um, some of the layered approaches we were taking, it kind of started pre-accession, right? So as as you guys remember, coming you know getting ready, spun up for that first course, whether it was an indoctrination course or combat control orientation course or TACP bubs coming through and preparing, uh, you know, for their future. It, it was really word of mouth. Um, and I, I can remember coming through, finding a uh, firefighter at Dias Air Force Base and finding out, hey, this guy failed out three times. What was it about the course that um, I can tease out and, and try to help my game, you know, as I prepare to, to ship out? And, you know, you constantly got that uh, work on your running, work on your swimming, work on your cows and all that stuff, uh, which is great. Um, so again, it came back to how do we stand something up that's going to make uh, these individual candidates stronger, fitter, faster, more mentally resilient as they're coming through training. So the first kind of swing at that human performance aspect was the, uh, the special warfare preparatory course that we stood up in uh, June of 17. And really just a focus on uh, the candidates as they're coming through uh, the pipeline. So but it didn't stop there, right? So we started seeing linkages of candidates passing their their pass test, uh, the physical ability stamina test, prior to shipping to BMT. They would get to BMT and then atrophy during that seven weeks of BMT. And then by the time they show up at our front door to start, you know, filling the blank course, depending on which uh, flavor AFSC you were going for, they were failing. And so through the HP and then standing up the wing later on in October of 18, where now we have one of a kind uh, in the Air Force, a human performance support group that's laser focused on building the human weapon system. So think, think of it as any aircraft maintenance group working on the aircraft for the human weapon system. These folks are laser focused on, uh, the, on the human. So now going back, we start tailoring what we're doing for PT and, B, and BMT uh, so that the, the candidates don't atrophy while they're coming through. And then we catch them in what uh, how prep is transitioning out to the special warfare candidate course, seven and a half weeks, again, laser focused on uh, making them stronger, better, faster as they're progressing through. But having taken a step back and leveraging uh, the technology and the knowledge that is part of some of the professionals that we have uh, within the organization, and then exploiting that into the curriculum, integrating it in so that we're building the student from day one uh, coming through. So I'll pause there and see if the boss wants to. Oh, yeah. Uh, you, you asked the perfect question for me, Alex. So, so to, to dial it in, because I know one's ready, cast a wide net. And so it's the folks that are trying to come into the community, but it's also some of the folks that are in the community. <clears throat> you know, those of us that have been around for a while and have had experience with SOCOM's uh, Preservation of the Force and Family, uh, that has human performance overtones to it. That's not what we're talking about. Uh, the HP team here does that, and when we injure people in the pipeline, which we do at a very regular basis, that team is also postured to put them back together, much like you would see at a POTIF construct in a, in a line unit. What, what the chief is talking about is taking it to the next level that is only happening, in my observation, irregularly across the force. So take a skill that is common to all pipelines like shooting. If you're going to go out on the range and, and learn how to shoot uh, the way that you should, <clears throat> how do we link uh, multidisciplinary, uh, holistic 
experts to that sp specific event to make you better at shooting. We, we've never actually done that before. So whether it's breath control, arousal control, heart rate control by interfacing with an op psych, whether it's the strength and conditioning coaches recognizing that sh shooting is fundamentally a posterior chain activity. And so how are we going to strengthen the posterior chain three weeks before you ever get out to the range so that you have a solid foundation to begin to move and shoot at the same time? Those are the kind of building block approaches that we're, we're uh, weaving into the training courses in a way that they've never been done before. And we all have experiences of uphill both ways in the snow, of course, going out to the range the day after uh, we got we got pounded into the sand, sand because somebody felt like that was the appropriate thing to do during that day. We don't, we don't do that anymore. We're deliberately designing a pipeline that produces superior operators in every facet of that word to include surrounding those operators with uh, human performance needs as they acquire the skills that we need them to. And that we're really excited about that. And we're really just at the first stages. Fantastic. And we all hang our hat on physical fitness. As everybody knows, it's the first line in everybody's CFETP, right? Maintains physical fitness in accordance with the following standard. And that's something that we all have that shared, that shared idea, that shared misery, you know, going on that monster mash on Thursday and then going out to the range and being so sore, you can't like, can't pick your hands up to, to shoot. We we've all seen that before. So it's really exciting to hear that you're including not only data, but all these things that we've learned from our experiences to say, Hey, Maybe tomorrow isn't the best day to go hard in the paint on legs because we're doing AIEs the following day and you got to climb a ladder, you know, 20 times. It's really exciting to hear that going on. Um, you know, uh, we always talk about, you know, wearables and, and including everybody in. How many data points, if you could give us a roundabout, are you including into these some of no kidding job specific standards that you're using? Yeah, so we're really just building that out. We've only done it with one course right now, Alex. So we've, we have fully integrated human performance into the TACP apprentice course. And so that will be the first time that we try it. And as we step out and integrate uh, with the PGA and controller and eventually SR uh, CFETPs to lapse into ATC Dolphin Speed for a second, uh, yep. you will begin to see that, that similar integrated process. Uh, so, so I don't have a hard answer for how many data points it is, but, it, but I would like to, to pivot back to one thing that you said. The physicality of it, we naturally retreat to because it's so uh, formative for us. It is so important. We're not dismissing it. But frankly, it's easier. Um, the, the harder piece is to figure out uh, how we don't wash out PJs at Kirtland because it turns out they don't like blood. And we somehow didn't figure that out uh, until 18 months into a training pipeline. You know, how can we avoid stupid? But, but also, how can we help the folks that have trouble locking out on a fast rope uh, but can deadlift the house? That they're, at times, there is no physical explanation for why uh, our operators or candidates struggle to acquire the skills that they do. So, and, and so our favorite story that we tell often is in the last three years that we had a, a PJ candidate that could not climb a caving ladder, a beast, uh, like most of the folks going through the pipeline right now, but could not climb it. And it turns out when, when he put his hand on the caving ladder, his heart rate was jacked into 190 uh, because he had a mental block about climb, wow. climbing caving. But, Orienting our human performance professionals is, is way more than just the physical aspect. The physical aspect is going to be fun and it's going to make us better. Um, but it's really the mental, the, the moral injury and the spiritual aspects that we're, uh, we're folding in. All of that, I think, is going to produce a superior operator. And then just to tag on that, Alex and Peaches, you know, as we look at how we baseline uh, each of these operators in terms of capturing a lot of that data so that after they graduate us and they, they, they move out to the operational side, um, part of that eight human performance baselining is a life cycle management and sustainment for each of those uh, candidates. So now 
whether you're in for you know an enlistment of four or six years or 10 to 15 or you end up retiring from a sustainment perspective we have a good baseline that they can always reach back to to identify hey what was your starting point like and now through 10 combat deployments where where do you reside right now physically uh, mentally spiritually and so you know just like we would for our aircraft weapon system we pull them off the line you know there's line uh, inspections and maintenance there's intermediate where we're going to go layers deeper and then there's depot level maintenance where we're coming off and we're kind of taking it apart and trying to identify you know where there's uh, stress fractures and things of that nature so it kind of builds into this cradle to grave approach to how we care uh, and feed for our operators uh, and, and their families in the long term. Well, Chief, you you actually bring up a, a good point that I, I'd like to pull the thread on a little bit is, uh, you know, we we tout all the time that, hey, um, not just the community itself, but, you know, you have SOCOM, AFSOC, NSW, MARSOC, all, all of us, plus all the respective training pipelines are a living, breathing type of thing, which means that, you know, from, from Credit Grave, you're talking about that foundational aspect. We're looking at, um, you know, recruitment, development. And so we have changed that. So what are some of the ways that we have changed our recruitment and development um, from what it was to what it currently is? And what is the kind of five and 10 year outlook? Uh, if you could answer that, sir. No, that's a good question, Peaches. So I, you know, similar to what I mentioned earlier um, about how we're investing in the candidates prior to them even shipping for BMT. So we kind of call that uh, that development phase uh, prior to accessions. Um, so, you know, on average, that somewhere between uh, six to nine months. Um, and then as they're working with those field developers out there, trying to monitor their prog progress as they're getting ready to ship. So that being said, um, at the end of the day, it's not about the quantity, it's really about the quality, right? How are we preparing each individual candidate for the best uh, chance of success at what we know is gonna be a rigorous pipeline in prolonged periods of discomfort? Uh, how do we approach that? So that's one thing that we absolutely did not do you know, a decade ago. It, it was a game of numbers. And so that's why you saw uh, recruiting pre-accession numbers you know the goal i can remember periods of uh, back in 2012 to 2014 it was hey we need to bring in anywhere from 1700 to 1800 sessions to spit out you know the four to 500 that we needed and so the thought process was more in equals more out but i think we we know now after running this experiment uh you know, with human performance support group and a lot of the assets that we didn't have previously staring at this, that that's not necessarily the case, right? It, so it's, it gets after how, how are we preparing? Are we going out after the right uh, talent? And, and again, preparing the, each individual candidate, both physically and mentally for what they are going to expect. Like the boss mentioned uh, earlier, you know, a pararescue man in the pipeline for X number of months, discovers that he's going to be around blood and, and decides to push away. So that, that, you know, how do we attack that? That's, you know, a minor uh, aspect of it. Yeah. I think you asked the right question, Chief. You know, the Rangers call it the war for talent because, because the community's got to tie everything back to war somehow. So, you know, just recruiting into the Ranger Regiment, they want to talk about the war for talent and the other people that uh, are bidding for the services of a, of a very small portion of the population. We, we are in a war for talent for the same kind of folks that go to those uh, other soft components, those other land warfare components. 
And so what I think you see now, again, as we have built up the infrastructure, both in the wing and surrounding the wing in the recruiting service, uh, <clears throat> other soft components are offering 50 grand for, uh, for folks for stepping into soft training pipelines. Well, now, now so is the Air Force. I don't know that you see that uh, if you don't have this kind of infrastructure built up, kind of leaders focused on it, advocacy all the way up the chain uh, to the highest levels of the Air Force. At, at the end of the day, that costs a lot of money. Uh, and it is unique and it is offered specifically to this skill set in, in a way that should identify uh, to young folks coming in and to folks in the service that uh, our branch of service values what, what we're trying to do here. They value their land warfare experts. They acknowledge we don't have enough of them and they're willing to reach into their pocketbook uh, in a pretty tight fiscal environment where there's a lot of big ticket things that the Air Force needs to get done uh, and put their money where their mouth is and, and actually pay to incentivize folks to come in. We know uh, from experience, both 20 years ago and uh, observing the pipelines today that folks that are financially motivated are probably not going to last long in the pipeline. Uh, but that's nice. Uh, and if it's the right if it's the right kind of person and they're interested in this kind of line of work and they have an option to send 50, 50 grand home to mom uh, and join the Army or or shake an Air Force recruiter's hand and join the Air Force, at least we have made that a level playing field in a way that I think is going to be helpful over time. Oh, that's, that's great, sir. And so when you talk about uh, talent management and you know, and that's what kind of what we pride ourselves on is talent management. Have you noticed any difference, if any, uh, between, you know, candidates from five, 10 years ago, or even when we went through the pipeline to now? Yeah, I, I have chief, but you know, those, I think that's all relative to when you get your blinks at the pipeline. So when I stepped away from the pipeline about about when you do, I can never remember if I was just ahead or just behind you. But for the purposes of this podcast, mm-hmm. I was clearly just ahead. Just yeah. ahead. The last hardcore, sir. That's the one you took. And then Chief Peaches took the easiest one that they came up with after that. So that's a standard. That's good. Yeah, big drop off in, in difficulty right after you graduated. But I remember, as he does, uh, and as all of us do, with fondness, with brotherhood, with love, uh, the people that I went through the training pipeline with. And I think about them often, and I have a run and tally in my head of, of who's still in and as we uh, if I as I lose more hair and the silver fox uh, turns more silver uh, there are fewer of those folks around uh, over time but uh, the, the most striking difference is that the people come, come through the pipeline now are freaks uh, just physically a different species of animal uh, than we're coming through the pipeline when we were coming through I, I, I hate to lead with that but it's just the most striking evidence that is not necessarily the only thing that we value and frankly if you're if you're buying what we're selling and, and if you're uh, if you're listening to uh, the message that we're putting up to to early in the pipeline and pre-accession, it's about your attributes, your character, and who you are. That's what's going to make you successful in our training pipelines and, and in our in our business. But damn, uh, are the are, is the physicality level of the folks in our pipelines different? Um, and I I suspect that we are going to start getting that same feedback from the operating forces. You know, as as the pipeline shifts and changes. Uh, and you, you finish up a two and a half year pipeline for PJs. Those folks are just now spitting out of the pipeline with changes that were made in 2019 uh, and, and beginning to have brain where folks hit the, hit the floor. So I think that you're going to see a ton of that uh, in the future just uh, because it is so fundamentally different. Uh, otherwise, I think from a DNA sample features, the, the company part to me is it's about the same. It's about the same person. Hungry, hungry folks that want to be part of something meaningful. They want to be part of something bigger than themselves. And frankly, you know, we, we talk a lot about it here. We don't, I don't know that we talk about it as uh, with the community as much as we should. They want to be part of an honor culture. Uh, and, and so if you look at warrior cultures over time, 
back back to the smart Spartans uh, all the way up to the Marine Corps today. You can you can the negative flip side of that tends to be referred to as a shame culture, but the positive side is an honor culture. The, the folks that want to be part of our business are seeking to join a horizontal honor culture and earn uh, their place along uh, the, the folks that they aspire to be. That has not changed a bit, uh, and that is very comforting. Absolutely. Yeah, just, I think Go ahead, to Jake. pile on that, Alex, is just uh, as a complimentary view is just as you guys saw to the person to your left, to your right, when you first started your initial training and then you know, you're pushing in three, four, five, six weeks into the training. You look to your left, your right, and you're about a third of what you started with. It, it goes back to that classic never quit attitude, that mentality um, that, that we still see, that, that common denominator that you remember, just like the boss said, on your team of however many that graduate with you. That's, that's, that, that was that common bond is regardless of what was going on around you throughout that training experience. It, it was the individuals to your left, to your right, that weren't going to quit uh, because they they wanted that bad. So that I think that's the one common thing that's still there. Well, we often, you know, Trent had a great video and a great take on this the other day. Is you know, you it has been a long time. Like we've been disassociated for being a student in the pipeline for some of us decades, some of us multiple decades, right? Like we've we've been doing this thing for a long time, and you have a goal, like an idea of who you think you were as a student. I bet your instructor had a very different view of it. So, uh, you know, even amongst our peers, when you you inevitably hear, you know, because we hate two things in ST or we hate two things in aspect war and it's the status quo and any change, right? Those are the two things that we have a problem with. Um, so when you hear, oh, these new candidates, these new millennials, uh, we, we always give a, a hard truth to our peers and we say, hey, you remember it being uh, you remember being super good and your hair was always in place and you always look great in your, your blue silkies. I, I got bad news for you, guy. There was an instructor that could not stand you because of the way that you were. And, and they talked about you. And they were like, hey, I, I got to find a way to get this guy here. So um, I, I love hearing it, especially from from your feedback and from your optic that it looks apparent that we these are the same people. And I will echo the physicality of these students uh, and, you know, the young operators that we got coming out of the pipeline it's obvious that, you know, these brand of humans, they grew up in CrossFit gyms, they grew up in a physical environment, and they 100% show that um, it, at the output level. Um, along with the, that physical, you know, the physicality, that never quit attitude, that wanting to be a part of an honor culture, what are some other things that make candidates successful during their time in the special warfare training wing? So what, what are some of those things that we can look for? Um, you know, especially like when we say, what does it mean to be a good person? So, sir, from from your from your seat down there at JBSA, when we say be a good person and you'll have success in the special warfare training wing, what does that mean? I'll start with the first part of your question. I think, Alex, and circle back to the back half. So, <clears throat> we talk about that all the time. What, what are the keys to success? What are predictors of success? And how can we boil it down to? We literally were talking this morning about a spit test. How can we have someone spin a cup? and identify the genetic potential that it's going to take to become successful as an operator. Uh, and apparently at, at one point people were chasing that, but we do not have that answer by the way, but we have answers on darn near everything else. So uh, there's a research flight uh, of green eye shade, very smart ops research analysts that work here in the wing that analyze everything about the data flows that, uh, that we have. And so they just out, out briefed us on the success trends at uh, assessment and selection for FY21, for instance. And the, the results are always fascinating. Um, and include things like uh, some some of our favorite ones that are that are, are correlated, but probably not causal for all those out there and uh, listening on the net. So 
and I'm not telling you that you have to follow this like a script. Um, but it would appear that people who have been in fights are more successful in our training pipelines than people who have not, uh, for instance. There, there are less uh, easy to pick out links between uh, common sports that you would find. It's not, it's not only the football players, it's not only the wrestlers, it's not only the, the water polo players. It's a bit more varied than that. Uh, there actually does not appear to be a link between age and or IQ in your ability to finish assessment and selection, but there's a significant difference in the people that finish and are selected in both age, IQ, uh, and uh, some college experience, for instance. Getting, getting down to kind of brass tacks, because we, we really do uh, scrape at every data point, uh, the physicality aspect of it, folks with a higher body mass index tend to do better, uh, kind of across the spectrum. If you're heavier, taller, uh, you, you, you tend to finish ANS more often. You also tend to get hurt more often if you're heavier. So there's probably a sweet spot there uh, in terms of your, your load carrying capacity. So uh, those are some of the things that we have looked at. Uh, and, and then training age, which is, which is a term that we use frequently here, uh, that's probably best defined as how long have you been off the couch? Uh, how, how long have you been physically active? How long have you had some of that CrossFit uh, or, or fitness experience that you talk about, Alex? If, if you're starting that uh, when you come into the pipeline, the attributes that we seek, drive, stress tolerance, matter less because you're going to be hurt or be unable to adapt fast enough to meet the physical standards as they come at you in the training pipeline. So there's a training age that seems to be required that suggests you need to have been doing this for a second uh, before you step, which is why uh, the Chief Popovic's comments about pre-accession development and the work that we're doing before they ever get into the Air Force is so important. So um, when Flipping back to what it means to be a good person, I'm going to pass that part out to the, to the chief. <laughs> nice, <laughs> teed him up. Got him. Yeah. So when I first showed up, uh, Colonel Ron Stinger used to we we would have these discussions a lot, and and part of it was we used to talk about the physicality requirements uh, to get through you know the old Indoc course, and part of that discussion always led down to like yeah, we, I remember just some absolute beast getting through the course man with a jerks uh you know whether it was in the initial parts of the pipeline or whatever the case was you ran into other issues that didn't surface necessarily with a lot of the objective based um requirements that they went through a course like that and so when i started to tease i'm like hey, you know so what do you mean by a, a good human being and he said hey you know we can't necessarily uh train somebody to have integrity uh or to uh, be a good teammate uh, that understands what teamwork means and putting the team before self, uh, things of that nature. We can build somebody up to run faster, to do more push-ups, more pull-ups, to swim faster, things of that nature. But being a good, when you show up at the front door as a good human being that has the attributes that we seek, uh, you know, like when we're talking about integrity, uh, teamwork, the ability to communicate effectively, um, you know, both uh, inner team and outer team, uh, things of that nature. That 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 kind of builds that nucleus of what we're talking about when it comes down to, to being a, a good person. So, you know, to, to summarize that, I, I think it just boils down to we're not just interested in that physicality piece. We want to be able to take that person, uh, put them in a group of individuals and see how they perform uh, as it relates to some of their inherent attributes. And then through a series of assessment centers, tease those attributes out so that we can get a really good uh, clean, pure look of that individual and be able to make a, an informed uh, kind of assessment as they, they work through uh, the assessment selection process. Yeah, I have for, for the chief. That's exactly what I would have. Uh, he just said it better. 
but, but <laughs> at, at, at a baseline, the physicality is an expected standard. If, if you don't have it, you're not going to you're not going to continue. What what I think is new is if you don't have the attributes we're looking for, uh, you're not going to continue either. That is new. It is different. Uh, and you could you could be a pretty bad person or a pretty lousy teammate in the past and be successful in training and, and get to an operational team. That is unlikely now because we are screening specifically for the attributes that we value as we look at the same kind of baseline level of physicality that has always been a requirement and always will be. Speaking as a guy that made it through when he shouldn't have, Colonel, that one that one hurts. I'm right here. I can hear you. The connection's working fine. I, I get it. Um, I, I want to look forward to the future a little bit, right? Because you, you really are. You are building, and, and we've said it so many times. I've keyed in on things that I've heard from both you and the Chiefs, sir, but we're building, we're, we're molding, we're getting people ready for an entire career. We really are thinking with that longevity. It's not just, you know, hey, you're going to hit 10 years in, you'll be a staff or maybe maybe a junior tech, maybe if you can possibly get there at 10 to, 10 to 14 years and, you know, you'll have seven deployments and it's time for a desk because you're just going to be broken. That's not, the, that's not the model anymore. And we're doing that with attributes as well. So in your mind, sir, how, how does the special warfare training wing train airmen uh, in a manner which ensures long-term production um, and success year after year? And this is not just in the pipeline, but this is what groundwork are you laying for these special warfare airmen into the future? Yeah, that's another really good question, Alex. It's almost like we coordinated that beforehand. Almost <laughs> like <that>. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you have to. Uh, so I, I think our answer to that is that the operating forces tell us uh, what makes successful operators, Alex? And uh, and so I think it's important if we haven't said it before, and I know uh, your team has picked at this topic, but about attributes. Those attributes were not selected by the training enterprise or the training wing. They were selected by the operating forces. And the operating forces said, this is what we value in making a successful operator. What we've never actually done the work to do uh, is to go back and measure the way that we assess for those attributes and whether they, in fact, produce the operator that we thought that we would. We're doing that work now at the tunes of a, a couple million dollars uh, with RAND. Uh, and that's why the operating forces uh, in, the, in the squadrons out there, and AFSOC in particular, are getting phone calls from RAND psychologists asking questions about recent graduates from pipelines to link directly back to, did it work? Did, did the person that you selected have the attributes that we thought, yes or no? Are those attributes making them successful in the career field, yes or no? When you marry that, I think, with some of the longitudinal, again, using ATC Dalton speak language, the longitudinal tracking we're trying to do for the, for the health of an operator, what I think you get is healthier habits earlier in an operator's timeline that extends that operational window and allows you to run potentially harder deep into your E78 years before the desk comes calling uh, and, and some staff work, some increased responsibility. Um, all built around the attributes that make you a successful operator on the X and a good teammate in garrison. That, that is our long-term bid for success. If we're doing it right, um, we're building it around, what do you operating forces need? To tell us what those attributes look like. We'll pick people built around that. And then what they will, we will arm them with tools that they've never had in the past to go deeper into their operational career than they ever have before. Okay. Well, sir, and that actually, the chief, I'm going to push this one off on you because as you're talking about that, that longevity and building that foundation, um, like I can, I can tell you from, you know, a chief that's at an operational squadron and, and LX can attest to this as well. The PJs that we have just gotten out of the pipeline are fantastic. I, I'm over the moon with, uh, 
not just their character, but how well they perform uh, physically and operationally. I've, I've been on a, out on several events where they have just crushed it. And, you know, uh, Colonel Doyman as the commander is like, hey, um, what, is he is he coming from another unit? Like, does he have that kind of experience, you know, already? And it's like, no, he's straight out of the pipeline, sir. So that just shows you the, the kind of product that's coming out. So I definitely appreciate that. But as we're talking about that longevity, how can uh, the operational units not just help that longevity piece of it, but also help you at, at the wing back at, you know, in the pipeline? Uh, so that's a great question. So first off, uh, thanks for that feedback because uh, that's that's part of what my answer is going to be is just having that that feedback. constant <laughs> that constant loop uh, between uh, the operational force and the institutional force, and 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 just helping uh, us stay on target. Because uh, right, the the contract is the the career field education training plan. Right, that that's our go to. That's our menu, and then we figure out how we're going to do it. Uh, but but I think having that feedback from the operational side on what the outcome is. I mean, if you guys remember, we had those graduate assessment surveys when you you know when new uh, when new troops would show up to the organization, and uh, as a supervisor, you would fill it out. And essentially, it was uh, you know between the, the graduate assessment surveys and the field evaluation questionnaires. And sometimes you filled it out, sometimes you didn't. It always seemed like it showed up in your email box at the worst time, but if you did a lot of it re revolved around hey you've had this uh, individual for uh, six months how are they performing are they meeting the expectations uh of that skill level and in, in, in the tasks that they uh, were performed or expected to perform so having that that consistent feedback as we get better at uh re revising and doing uh revisions of uh the training process uh you know, as we get that up on step, but having that feedback from the operational side, I think is key. So that, that's one. Uh, two is having, just like you guys said earlier, it's been a minute since I've been uh, in the pipeline or experienced that or been with students, is having a lot of our bubbas out there on the line coming back to the institutional force to walk the grounds and just see, you know, the changes that have been made within the pipeline. And, and I'm telling you, Guys, and I'm not just blowing smoke, but it, most of the guys that we've had come out and just be a part of assessment selection, check out the, the candid course, whatever the case is, they've walked away with, okay, that I, I understand better on, on what's going on. And what that does kind of holistically for us as a community is we're, we're all messaging the same thing. And it, it's not that it's, we're trying to, uh, it's not a smoke and mirrors campaign. It's this is what we're doing so that there's a, a good understanding between both, both sides. Because at the end of the day, it's a revolving door, you know, whether you're on the operational side or the institutional side, you're, you're going back and forth between both. Um, so that, that'd be my response to both in terms of what uh, we request uh, from the operational side. Awesome. Well, uh, I guess this would probably be, this next question would probably be uh, good for both of you, but in what ways are the wing or is the special warfare training wing investing in not just, you know, its staff, its cadre members, but also the students and their families? I know that's a nebulous, it's kind of a nebulous <laughs> question, but I, like, I don't, I don't want to just go specific. I, I, I do want to kind of cast a wide net because there are so many different entities. I mean, we could do an hour on each entity. So just as, as a holistic, uh, you know, investment from the wing. 
Yeah. I think just tackling the permanent party piece of it, I guess, Chief. Uh, I, I know absolutely coming off the line uh, two years ago when I when I came back here that I had a perception about what life was like in, in the training enterprise uh, that was pretty radically different than what's actually happening here. Uh, the, the instructors that are work, working here are working really hard, way, way harder uh, than I thought that they were. And, but some of the imperatives be, uh, are still the same as, as the guys in the operating forces without some of the same tools. So, you know, <clears throat> at places like Bragg and I think proliferated across the, the theater side of the soft force, you'll see things like reset weeks where you come back off a George cycle and you'll stand down and your POTIF team will engage with you and make sure uh, that, that you're good to go, that you're good to get back up on step, get into the training uh, battle rhythm and garrison and chase another rotation. Some of that has changed. The George has actually gotten a bit more solidified. There is no jort here. The guys never come off, off task. They never get to go into an individual training phase. And so they, there's really no chance to come up for air. And there's no chance for us to diagnostically baseline them because they're the same guys that are on the line. They're the, they're the same, you know, 10, 12, 14 year staff tech master sergeant that, that have three to four deployments that are a little bit banged up around the edges. But we are not throwing the kind of resources at them that we do on the line side. So, so we have wrestled with that a bit, uh, that, you know, the cost benefit there is, do you stand down a course? Do you extend the, the training pipeline of students in an already too long training pipeline so that you can do a reset week or a series of reset weeks across uh, portions of your force? Those are really hard questions for us. And, and frankly, we've been a bit uneven in, in what we've been able to pull off. But that, that is where we are focused. How do we invest uh, in our permanent party the same way we would if they were on the line so that they leave better than when they came here? Um, you, you'll have to grade us out uh, when they come back into the force chief, but I think we have more to do. Uh, we we can do better to, to invest in our permanent part. Right, and I think yeah, it's that, important that that we, as as an operational unit, also not only like like uh, Chief Pop said, you know, provide guest instructors, but I like I think we've got to feed that machine from the very beginning. And and like you're hearing that from me, who's at an operational unit, and I have tasks that we have to fill and we have to satisfy but it's just as important to to invest in the very beginning stages because if not that you know um that break or whatever isn't really a, a break because those guys are for sure jobbing and chief i apologize i completely interrupted you press he gets excited <laughs> no that's right you know i was just going to later on top of that so it kind of to your point is uh you know senior enlisted leaders were because there's there's second third order effects to a healthy manned uh, organization, right? So when you're you're manned out the way uh, the, the organization is supposed to be priced out to execute fill in the blank curriculum, that creates uh, just enough space where an instructor can come off the line as required to take lead to go to PME. That in turn feeds uh, that individual uh, instructor's family with the time off that that uh, that individual uh, instructor deserves. But it, we've we've adopted that as uh, to be more deliberate in how we're investing in the instructor. So LX, just like uh, when you're out at, at Kerlin, if you've ever been an instructor, it can become Groundhog Day. Uh, it's you know it's working the assembly line. It's it's uh, day in and day out. You're doing a lot of the same things as you're moving and shifting from block to block. Um, so you know how do we create uh, some of that white space and be more deliberate about professional development external of of being an instructor. So, you know, if we're doing it right, uh, instructor X is going to land in the formation. He's going to get qualified as a, a basic instructor. 
Then we're going to get him instructor supervisor. And then uh, he's going to move up in, in terms of flight chief. And now he's uh, overseeing maybe multiple blocks and, and obviously multiple instructors. But external of that, how do we invest in each of the, not just the cadre, but the permanent party writ large. Uh, so that takes a little homework and identifying from leadership to better understand you know, what it means to a three Fox five admin specialist uh, that's part of our formation. What, what is professional development for that individual outside the, the, the cadre? Uh, or any of our uh, HP medics uh, or strength conditioning coaches, what, what's uh, you know professional development for them? So taking a more deliberate approach to what that means and investing that back into the uh, the formation. Well, and for everybody out there on team that that isn't internalizing exactly what this means, instructor duty is no longer a time off. You're not on the bench. You're going to be in- including your PME. You're going to be including those advanced skills. We were able to get guys to shooting schools and get you know shooting schools down to Kirtland for instruction, and we found a way to make those things happen even while you know the machine never stops. And Chief Pop, you hit the nail on the head. Every single day, you're teaching the same block of instruction or maybe the same couple blocks of instruction, and the only thing that's changing is the faces and the weather outside, and that can wear on guys. Um, guys and gals, but you know, the fact that you, from your, from your, um, you know, your seat in this entire thing at the wing, the fact that you're saying, Hey, this isn't some time off. We're going to continue to make you better physically, mentally, spiritually, professionally. We're going to develop you. That should attract people to want to come be in that enterprise. And I'm just glad to hear that the ball has moved so much for, you know, so much further forward. Cause I definitely felt that pain, um, when I was at Kirtland, I, I hope you guys are ready because I'm going to hit you. I'm going to hit you with a local and then I'm going to hit you with a global. So for the local question here, what is what is the special warfare training wing doing in the larger community? Because you're not, you, you may feel like you're on an island on that Chapman training annex, but you're really not, right? You engage in that larger San Antonio area. So Colonel Dula, what, what are you doing to engage in the community and be a good mission partner with everybody there at JBSA? Yeah, we're doing some stuff. It's slow going. Uh, you know, for, for those familiar with uh, Joint Base San Antonio, I'll get the numbers wrong, so someone will be offended for sure. But uh, <laughs> don't at least, you're on a perfect uh, podcast for that, sir. We do it every week. <laughs> there's at least three three-star commands. I think they they say there's 212 mission partners. I think there's uh, 37 wings, uh, and we are the youngest, smallest uh, wing on that block as as we continue to stand up and find our feet three and a half years after the wing stood up. Uh, so. You can still occasionally get the reaction when you're interfacing with with folks in downtown San Antonio of your your who your mm-hmm. your where are you again and what do you do? Mm-hmm. Um, but but in other places we're making some big strides. So we have some exciting kind of relationships building with the San Antonio Spurs. They are interested in human performance just as much as we are, uh, and they're they're about to sink a significant amount of money into a human performance center in downtown San Antonio that that could and will mirror what we're going to do when we build the human performance training center here at. Uh, uh, on Chapman Training Annex, so you know those those relationships are are forming in, in a way that's pretty exciting. But it's it's slow going, and uh, part of it is just waving the flag and making sure people understand. Hey, do you understand that this is where the Air Force uh, trains its land warfare experts? That it all starts right here uh, in San Antonio. When people hear that message, they instantly get excited. It's just finding them uh, and and getting them excited about it. Yeah. Absolutely. So there, there's the local, sir. You crushed it. I'm going to turn it over to you to, to Chief Pop. This might be a little bit tougher, but hey, let's see. Let's let's go. Um, if there's one thing that we're good at in Aspect War, it's being able to to divest from emotionality, divest 
from maybe the way that we feel about a certain thing. We're able to look at even really heinous events. We're able to get good after action reports and, and good lessons learned and press on. And, you know, I say that through a lifetime of unfortunately losing friends and, and having to be part of those stand downs and, and say, Hey, you know, was this right? Was this wrong? How can we get better? And how can we avoid this in the future? The biggest thing on every news channel right now, it's Russia, Ukraine, right? What are we doing in aspect war? What can we take away? What lessons can we take away from this Ukraine-Russian war so that we can adjust fire and we can get ahead of the, the upcoming challenges? Yeah, that's a good one, Alex. So I, what, I, what I'll say, I'll try to sum it up in one word and then I'll uh, I'll friend. But I, I, what I would say is evolve, right? Um, so I think one thing we talk about as it relates to the, the training plans and the curriculum and things of that nature is for a period of time there, uh, especially um, when we look at the process that it takes to evolve training. A uh, good example, you know, when I come when I came through the pipeline, a lot of the tactics, whether it be small unit tactics, uh, you know, formation movements, whatever the case was, a lot of it was Vietnam based tactics, right? There wasn't a whole lot of reach back because a lot of my instructors at that time didn't have any combat uh, experience. So fast forward, now we've got instructors with, like I was saying earlier, anywhere from eight to 10 uh, deployments. And, and Sorry about that, everybody. We had some technical difficulties. So we kept in most of Command Chief Pop's um, answer, but we lost a lot of it. So sorry about that. Uh, we've edited the best we possibly can. So now on to the rest of the interview. Well, sir, uh, as we kind of wrap this up, I know that we're coming to a close. So I, I want to hit both of you with a, a question and it's the exact same question, but I want to start with you, Colonel Dula. Um, you know, our demographic is anywhere between 15 and 35 year olds that are summer wanting, aspiring to be, you know, PJCCT, SR, TACP, coming to the Air Force. Some are already in and they want to cross train. So what would be some of the advice that you would give those members that are listening? Uh, that's a terrible question, Chief. Uh, <laughs> I, I just say that because we every every single question we say, oh, that's a great question. Thank you, one That was a wonderful question. That was a quite terrible question. <laughs> a terrible question. I'll, ta I'll take it. <laughs> I'm going to answer it anyway. Uh, the thing that I would tell them, uh, I guess, Chief, it would be to, to put them on the X, so to speak, of... Uh, be prepared to solve problems. So uh, I'll take the long way around and then I, and hopefully I'll specifically answer it. Whether whether they're young folks ready to enter a training pipeline, whether they're uh, in the in the service already looking to cross train, whether they're members of our force serving in, in an operational unit right now. Um, my observation uh, so that I can offend the maximum number of people in one given podcast is that uh, in particular, because of the talent level of our enlisted force, uh, there is a perception that uh, officers in particular aren't necessarily required all the time. Um, and and when, when the enlisted force in particular really wants officers around is when they're afraid of the consequences of making a decision or they don't know what to do. Uh, and the beauty in my mind is that uh, that's a very infrequent occurrence uh, in our community. Again, because we have such talented folks. Um, there's a bit when when at major inflection points, which clearly this community is and frankly, the Air Force is and frankly, our nation is as we pivot out of 20 years of combat operations and pivot to something else. There is absolutely a desire and a frustration uh, from the folks coming through the training pipeline. Tell me exactly what you're going to have me do. Uh, the guys on the line are asking to issue me a mission in, in a clear five paragraph off board that describes exactly what you want me to do. 
Um, and, and all I would offer is that's not the way it works. It has never been the way that it works. And particularly in the soft community, there's a bottom-up imperative where good ideas come from team rooms. Uh, so over the decade of CT operations where you would you could think that it was a rinse and repeat operation, just like running a training pipeline. Nothing could be further from the truth. Every rotation was different. And the constant tactical innovation that happened in team rooms that resulted in new capability, whether it's you know, digitally aided cast, that, that was not something that was issued down from on high uh, because a leader somewhere said, by the way, uh, force, go figure out how to digitally talk to airplanes. Uh, but the work that's happening with soft enabled suppression of enemy air defenses right now across the force, that, that's not top down business. That, that is bottom up innovation of people looking across uh, the globe, looking where trouble is and figuring out what skills are required uh, to be successful in those environments. That's what I would that's the advice that I would give to people either starting day one of the pipeline or thinking about uh, with a little bit of time under their belt and, and a uniform already on their back entering the pipeline. You're not going to be issued a script to make you successful in uh, in, the, in the combat scenario of your dreams. You're going to have to figure that out. And more is going to be asked of this generation of operators than was asked of my own, in my humble opinion. Because after 20 years, we did have a refined skill set oriented around the CT mission set. And we had a lot of reps and a lot of experience, and we got very good at what we did. Those handrails are now gone. Uh, and, and for the portion of the force that is frustrated by not being issued that five paragraph operator op order with, with a clear picture of what next looks like, uh, that, may, that may be disappointing. But at the end of the day, that, that idea is going to come from a team room somewhere. And the, and the folks that are in it right now are the folks that are about to join it. So I hope the folks that are ready to join the training pipelines and join these communities come with that sense of entrepreneurship and innovation uh, to solve hard tactical problems at, the, at their level because we need it. I cannot wait to snip that exact thing that you just said. You don't know how many questions we get. Well, what's the day-to-day -day like? When you're, what, What's the deployment's going to look like? Are these things drying up? Sir, I can't wait. I'm going to make your own little video section where you're going to tell people if you're waiting on a five-paragraph op board, you need to quit it and you need to go back to just not quitting, being a good person, and then being ready to improvise because that's where that stuff comes from. Chief Pop, over to you for your advice. Yeah, thanks, guys. So I, I won't try to articulate any better what the boss just said in terms of what to expect, uh, you know, post-training. What, what, what I'll say is prior to shipping a BMT or prior to entering the gate, gateway to special warfare, uh, I kind of sum it up in one word, which is discipline. Um, you know, that I, th I, I truly believe that the level of individual discipline, your own personal discipline, is going to equate to the, the success or failure of your experience in the pipeline. Uh, and I can think back to my own personal experiences uh, doing this job. Uh, my commitment and my level of discipline directly contributed to whether I was su uh, successful or if I failed. Um, and so with that, I think for any of those candidates out there that are pre preparing uh, to uh, enter into uh, Air Force Special Warfare and become a, a PJ TACP uh, SR controller, think through the steps you need to take. Be disciplined with your choices and create your own personal battle rhythm of events that you need to uh, endure uh, that set yourself up for success. And what I mean by those battle rhythm events is come up with a game plan, uh, both mentally and physically, uh, that you're going to commit to and be disciplined about holding yourself accountable to it. So that when you do show up and you make it through Air Force Base military, military training, you show up at our, our doorstep, you don't raise your hand and, and decide to uh, SIE, self-initiated elimination. Um, so discipline, I think, is, is something that each candidate needs to focus on before they show up. Solid. 
I'll take both those answers. They're great. Well, Command Chief, Colonel Dula, really appreciate great. you joining us. Oh. Great, control. great for control, Chief. One one public service announcement. Go for uh, it. And you can edit it out as required. I'll see how much <laughs> watch I have. Uh, the man sitting next to me uh, is retiring very soon. Uh, and having been a swim buddy uh, for the last two years, uh, it may not resonate with the younger portion of your viewing audience, but this is the passing of a legend. Uh, someone with uh, more than two and a half decades of service to our great nation and to these communities. And we would re be remiss if we didn't specifically recognize what his contributions have meant to the training enterprise where he is uh, finishing out the, the tail end of a pretty damn distinguished career. So uh, just I wanted to publicly get it out in the airwaves and memorialize forever uh, that, that PC is a fantastic teammate. It has been my honor and privilege to serve with him for these last two years. And I can't wait to be part of his retirement ceremony, which will happen here uh, locally on JBSA and G. Yeah, Chief Pop. Yep, absolutely. And thanks for thanks for everything you've done for us, Pop. I mean, we've we've known each other for quite some time now. So hopefully I can make it out there in June, but we'll see. But again, thanks for, for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Um, and I know that you guys are like one minute out from heading off to your next thing. So uh, again, thanks for joining us. Everybody out there listening, uh, thanks for tuning in.